We're in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. The message is entitled, Run for Glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you loved us so much. Lord, one day we're going to stand in that throne room and we're going to sing together with all the saints of all the ages, worthy is the lamb that was slain because you've redeemed to yourself some from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people group. And Lord, not only have you done that, but you called us to be a part of what you're doing in the world today. Oh, Lord, stir us up to our race to run for glory, Lord. Lord, I pray this morning that I might be spirit-filled. Lord, the message might be from you. And Lord, that each one of us might be spirit-filled listeners, that we would not be just hearers of the word, but obedient, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you hear water running, that's not your conscience telling you you forgot something at home. We're actually filling up uh, the baptismal pool because... Uh, Nash is going to give his testimony and be baptized at the end of our service, so uh, we're looking forward to that. We actually begin where Sam left off a couple weeks ago in Hebrews chapter 11, the last two verses. It says there, and all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised, because God hath provided something better for us, so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. And then he begins chapter 12. Because he wants you and I, the people that he's writing to there, to get the idea that the race is not just for other people. The battle is not for the professionals. Now traditionally, I kind of grew up this way too. You know, there was just kind of the thought. I, I often wondered why so many of my relatives that know the Lord, I didn't hear testimonies about how the person I witnessed, not all of them, but you know, I, I, that was when some I grew up with, I, from my mom and dad in our home, always having missionaries and evangelists. It's always about who's getting saved, who you getting the opportunity to minister to, but among some of my other uh, extended family, I didn't hear those testimonies, and I wondered why, and I asked a, a fellow that had come to our church that knew my family well. He'd been a professional hockey player, John Stewart from Canada, and then he came to the Lord, and now he's a pastor. He said, hey, Paul, you can't be too hard on people. They're just doing what they've been trained to do. That's what they were discipled to do. The old, the old way of doing church was, you know, you, uh, you, you come to the Lord, and then you make a profession of faith, and then you get baptized, and then you give your offerings, and you show up in church. And for all the other stuff, you hire professionals to get it done. And you know what happens? People miss out on the joy of the race. Not just a future glory, but they miss out on the joy of being what God has called them and what God has gifted them to be. Now we begin chapter 12, and it says, therefore. He's saying, we, we have this race also. Their number is not complete. The story is not over. It's not complete without your story and your race of faith. Therefore. Since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us. Now, people look at this passage and they get the idea that when your grandma gets to heaven, she's just peering over the edge of heaven, just watching every little thing you do. 
in, in ministry, whenever I've had to minister with a family, somebody lost a loved one, they always say something like that. Oh, well, they're just looking down from heaven on us now. Let me just clear that up for you. No, they're not. No, they're not. This last week, we heard a great speaker, and he got to the end of his message, and, and I guess he wanted to give a little response, so we told that worn-out story about the football player whose dad was blind, and he was just a half-baked football player, never really tried, so he never got to play much, and, and then his dad passed away, and he said, Coach, you got to put me in. you got to put me in. The coach said, No, you never tried anything you do. I'm going to put you in. No, Coach, I'm telling you, you put me in. I will be the best player on that field today. So the coach finally relents and puts the guy in, and he certainly was. He was the best player on the field today. And the coach had heard that his dad had died, and he said, I guess that was for your dad. He said, the thing you don't understand, Dad, the thing you don't understand, Coach, is my dad was blind, and today was the first day he watched a football game. That is so lame. I hope I'm not blowing your theology here, but that is just lame. First of all, not everybody that dies goes to heaven. And if they go to heaven and they get a glimpse of the glories there, you think they want to watch your sad life? No. No. Johnny Erickson taught us, said that, and I think this is a pretty good explanation. I mean, we'll understand more when we get to heaven. But she said, you know, when with our certain cherubs and, and, and beings that in heaven, all they say is holy, 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 holy. You think for all eternity, isn't that kind of boring? He said, no. She said, no. I love what she said. So they get a glimpse of God and they see even more of his glory, his beauty, his wisdom. And they look away and they, they praise his name, holy, holy. There's nobody like him. And they look back at God and they see something even deeper. For all eternity, we're, we're going to be in wonder of the God that saved us. So when you die, if you are a believer, your hope is Jesus It's not getting into heaven so you can watch people fail here on earth. See, the Bible says our tears are going to be wiped away. Can you imagine in heaven, you're looking over and there's your grandkids doing the same mess you did? No, oh, that's going to leave a mark. No. And the other thing, it would paralyze us. It would paralyze us if all we thought, this body of witnesses, are people that are, are just watching our every mistake. Right? No, no, no. We only have one that judges. Paul the Apostle said, I don't even judge myself. There's one that judges, one that's looking. And he's the one that died for you. He's the one that's rooting for you to have the best race possible also. And when you sin, the Bible says you have an advocate. John 1, 9 says when you sin, then you confess your sin. And he is faithful and just to forgive your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness so you can continue on your race. In Romans chapter 15, verse 4, it says this. Whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Now, the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant to you to be of the same mind with one another according to Jesus Christ. Now, when the writer of Hebrews is using this word, naphos, it's not like a little cloud you see up there floating around, people peering over the top. What he said, it means a great mass of cloud covering the entire visible space of the heavens. And so what the, the author was trying to get was at is this great mass of testimony. You see the word for witness is martyr. And Sam in his study this week told me he did some, and it also means hero. Well, we see where 
that could come from. Actually, what it's saying, and you look at Romans 15, is that it's your opportunity to look back, back at this great mass of evidence to those that live by faith and won the victory so you also will follow their example and live by faith. Seeing we have this great mass of evidence of the lives of victory that lived by faith. In the Old Testament, he's telling these people, listen, you're not the first ones. These people in Hebrews are a lot like us. Some of you maybe this morning. Some of you have committed your life to Christ, but you're still kind of counting the cost. You really haven't gotten involved. You're just kind of a spectator still. Others are still haven't committed their lives to Christ. See, this chapter is about two things, your opportunity in the race, your opportunity to be involved, and secondly, your citizenship. See, in those days when the writer's talking about the Olympic Games and about the race, you had to represent your country or your city. You couldn't just show up. You can't just show up here at the university for a track meet and just run for yourself. You have to be identified with a team so they know who to contact when you're breaking the rules. They know everybody's there on the same page. So he said that we have this great cloud of witnesses surrounding us. So just like they did, you've got to make a decision. The Christian race isn't a spectator. The Christian life isn't a spectator sport. It's to be run. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul's Starts out in verse 1, he said, Timothy, you need to pour your life into faithful men. Then he says, endure hardness, Timothy, like a good soldier of Jesus Christ, who his whole focus is to please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. So you're going to have to lay some things aside. Those of you that went in the service, you understand what that means. You didn't belong to yourself anymore, did you? It was kind of a slave system, wasn't it? Oh, they paid you what they said they're going to pay you. You worked hard. You got a promotion. Maybe you got a little bit more. But you belong to them. You didn't say, hey, I'm going to take tomorrow off, Sarge. Mm -mm. You put in for leave. You put in for sick call. You just did not show up for work because you were sick. You had to go to sick call, and the doctor would tell you if you were sick enough not to go to work. Because your life was not your own. When we talk about soldiers, we understand that. Paul says, you've enlisted. If you've signed up, you have decisions to make. Not just them. They made these decisions, and they, they, they had great victories in the Old Testament. Well, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's the same God in the Old Testament. Those had to make a decision about laying aside encumbrances. Now, the idea is a training period. When a person first starts running, we had a Christian track coach here in the high school years ago. He coached my boys. Uh, he was uh, himself, he was a middle distance runner, did very well. Paul Williams, he, ra he ran it for UCLA, and then we were blessed enough to have him come here and be a track coach here. Now, I used to think running was just your run, you're fast, you get out there and you run. No, no, no. When you're running sprints especially, there are certain things that you do. And when you would go to a track meet, you watch Laramie kids, and you watch kids from other high schools, it was amazing to see the difference. That's the different coaching made. Some of these kids come from, 
you know, these other schools, and they didn't have that kind of coaching. They looked like egg beaters running down. They're just running fast, and stuff's all over the place. You see the kids from Laramie, they ran like machines. Head was on level. They came out of the block low, and they won the race a lot. That's coaching. When they first started, they didn't know the things they had to, the habits they had to set aside. And when a runner runs, he doesn't show up. Maybe you train with weights. Some, some coaches have you train with weight vests. In the old days, you even put weights on your ankles. And then in Laramie, it's cold, so you run with a lot of clothes a lot of time. But it was time for the race. You take everything off that modesty will allow, so nothing holds you back in the race. You will lay aside the encumbrances. Now, some athletes have done really good. And they, they won their, their, their Olympic medal, and they came back the next year, and guess what? They enjoyed the victory too much, and they had to lose some pounds, took some training. Paul said, everybody that competes in the games does so to win, 1 Corinthians 9. And when you're running to win, giving up things is not a problem. He said, I buffet my body, not buffet my body. You know, there's a lot of people buffet their body. They're just going through the buffet. They're taking everything they want. And they think the Christian life is like that. No, he buffets his body and makes it his slave because he wants to win. We hear about athletes that have given up things and make them, them eat certain things and take vitamins and get up early in the morning and run and lift weights. We go, oh, there's a champion. And little guys and girls that grow up that want to be like those champions, they start emulating those things in their life. He said the Christian race is serious. It's for all eternity. And we get this time and place to be found faithful. So just like they did in chapter 11, those that found the victory through faith, you need to lay some things aside also. And so the idea is if you belong to Jesus Christ, it's not just for the pastors, the elders, the deacons, and, and a few holy people, but everybody. Can you imagine if everybody who named the name of Jesus Christ got serious about this race, what a difference it would make in our culture? See, we like as Christians sit back and blame the government for making sinful decisions. How come? Because they represent sinful people in our culture. And so we get the government that we want. And you don't change people's hearts by legislation, so it doesn't really matter what decisions they're making in legislation. That doesn't control how you live. But if we, as Christians, say, you know what, how am I supposed to run my race? The Lord, what do you want me to set aside? Now, if a fellow showed up for a race and he had his car hearts, and his boots, and maybe some overshoes on, because it might get cold out, we'd say, well, you don't plan on winning. Well, I, I, I paid good money for this stuff, so, you know, besides, I think I like the way it makes me look, so I'm going to, we'd say, no, no, he doesn't care about winning. It's not sin, it's just weights. And there are things that are holding on to us, and we're holding on to in our life, and I don't know what those things are, but the Bible says, in the Old Testament, the psalmist is praying, he said, Lord, search me and try me. Let the Lord look at your life. Decide what you ought to let go of. You ought to just kind of take off because it's hindering your race. Are you willing to do that? You see, the Lord saved you on purpose, and he saved you for a purpose, and so he's given you giftedness that you might finish your race and hear well done from him. Now, we have spiritual counselors, don't we? 
We have pastors and teachers. And you know what? All of us are just coaches. We can't run the race for you. We're running our own race. And as much as we can, we want to tell you what the Word of God says. You have all the spiritual food and, and the skill to finish what God has called you to do. The problem is, in a lot of our counseling today, Christian counseling, I think we're trying to talk people into the team. We're giving people marriage counseling. I'm not sure if they're on the team because every, hey, you, you can't, you know, they have advertisements now because our culture is degenerated. And I think they're good advertisements, you know, commercials that come on and, you know, teach your son how to hit a ball, how to hit this and that, but you should have taught him not to hit girls. <laughs> yeah. And so we're trying to tell people things they shouldn't be doing when, when what you should be doing is trying to, hey, have you tried this yet? You know, you find an athlete that's really trained and he's tuned and he finds out there's another product, another exercise he can do to get another step or to get a little bit stronger. You don't have to talk him into that because his focus is being the very best he can be. But I think in a lot of our Christian counseling, we're trying to talk people onto the team. Hey, man, you got to show up for practice, you know. Where are you? I'm coming to the place in my life that I, I just, as a pastor, you know, my gift is exhortation and coaching, and, and I just want people to, to get those victories too. And so I tend to want to hang fruit on people. Yeah, I can't do that anymore. I'm not going to do that anymore. I've been called in the past, maybe not lovingly, the samurai counselor. You know, samurai, you bring the sword. And somebody says, well, uh, Pastor, I need to talk to you for a long time. Now, nah, I probably won't take a long time if you don't lie to me. <laughs> what? Well, I won't lie. So if you don't lie, we'll get down to the bottom. And then I'll tell you what I know the Bible says about that. And then you have to decide if you're going to take that training tip from the Word or not. Because you see, when you give spiritual food to somebody that's not on the team, they don't belong to Jesus, it doesn't make any sense to them. And you're trying to hang fruit on a dead tree. It just doesn't bear fruit. But when you bring the word of God to somebody that desires to please Jesus Christ, because that's in their heart, it's their spiritual DNA, you don't have to talk them into anything. You say, hey, well, here's what the Bible says about that. People come from all kinds of different backgrounds. They have all kinds of weaknesses and different sins. But when you show them what the word of God says, they're excited to do it. Do we trip and fall? Yes, we do. Do we sin? Yes, we do. But the Bible says the righteous man falls down seven times and he just keeps getting back up again. Why? Because that's his DNA. He wants to please the Lord. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, here's the one part about every believer, whether we're absent from the body and present with the Lord, or absent from this body, or excuse me, or we're absent from the Lord and we're still living this life, we have this one principle. We want to please God. 2 Corinthians 5, as you get further down, it says, Jesus saved us, so our desire isn't to please ourselves, but to please him. That's the change. We want to please him, all of a sudden, we say, hey, Lord, how can I run this race better? Kid comes into you, you're a football coach. Coach, these guys are getting by me, and I'm supposed to be blocked. What do I do? And the coach says, well, here, let me help you with that. And that kid is excited to do that. Coach, I keep getting tripped up. They hand me the ball, and, and I just trip as soon as I hit the line. So he says, son, you got to pick your legs up. And he teaches him how to pick his legs up because that young man wants to get better at what he's doing. 
But if you're just waiting for somebody to say, hey, you know, you should be in church. Hey, you should come to Bible study. Hey, you know, you, you should stop doing drugs and alcohol. You know, you say you're a Christian. Then pretty soon you've got to say, I'm not sure if they're on the team or not. Because the lack, the desire, and they don't desire to go to the Lord and say, Lord, what do you want me to lay aside? But he's not talking about just weights here. Then he says, and the sins which so easily entangle us. Now, it's easy to be offended about other people's sin, isn't it? They kind of bug you. You know, the way they drive sinful, the way they just do things, you know. And, and it's easy for, I'm just, he's not talking about that. In the Old Testament, John MacArthur used the example, I think it's a good example, of dealing with our own sin. When Saul was given a mission by Samuel from God to go out and kill Agag and his whole crew. Wipe them out. Don't keep anything. Don't keep sheep, anything. They're an abomination. I want you to get rid of them. I'm tired of dealing with them. But he went out and kept the Beth. Because in those days, there's a tradition to have a living trophy room. So instead of that big elk head you got on your wall, you'd keep the king alive. And then he'd tell the story how you whooped him. You cut off his thumbs and his big toes so he couldn't ride and shoot a bow anymore and handle a sword. And then he'd tell the story. Oh, I tell you, Saul whipped me good. He'd tell the story. Living trophy room. And so Saul, instead of doing what God told him to do, just kept Agag and the best of the sheep and the cattle. And so when Sammy showed up, he said, uh, I, thought God, I thought God sent you on a mission. Oh, I did go on a mission. The problem was he went on his own mission. He said, if that's true, why do I hear cattle and sheep? Oh, well, I kept the best for God. And Samuel gives Saul that rebuke. He said, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen is better than the fat of rams. Just do what God said. And he dealt with Agag. The Bible says in the King James that Agag came mincingly. I'm glad that's over, fellas. And he said to Samuel, I'm so glad the bitterness of death has passed. We got through that now. And Samuel looked him in the eye and he grabbed Saul's sword and he pointed at him. He said, as you have made women childless, I'm going to make your mother childless. And he hewed Agag to pieces before the Lord. That's how we ought to deal with our own sin. See, we allow sin to stay around our life because, well, you know, we kind of like it. Go to God and tell God that you like your sin. Well, I can't do that. God wouldn't like that. No, no. That's what confession is. Agreeing with God about your condition. So you know there's some sin in your life. Quit letting it hang around. Hack, hack Agag to pieces. Go deal with it. How? Every time it rears its head. Paul said, don't, don't let land, sin have a landing spot in your life, a place that just shows up. That little a little smoke screen you got, you know, uh, Lord, you can have all this stuff. You know, a lot of us, I grew up in a Christian home, and I give God my smoking and drinking and my drugs. That was never a problem. There's some church that want to rail on stuff that nobody's got a problem with. That's pretty safe, isn't it? But those other things that entangle you and just keep you from running and winning. And Paul said, I beat my body and make it my slave, lest having preached to others, I myself would be set aside and I don't get to finish the race God laid out for me. He didn't say he's going to lose his salvation, but he wouldn't finish his race. He wanted to finish. He wanted the Lord to say, well done. He wanted to experience that glory 
of having the Lord not be ashamed that he'd saved him. He said, so you're going to have to make the same decisions they they made, laying aside those weights. Lord, where's the weights? And Wiest said, in in his Greek word study, he said, you have to run a while to figure out what a weight is, what's hindering you. So get involved, start running. You're not going to be an expert right away. And then he said, run with endurance. Set your mind to run with endurance. Endurance includes both passive endurance and active persistence. You're just not going to quit. How do you not quit? You don't make the decision to quit. You just keep putting one foot in front of the other in a long-distance race. And he's talking about a marathon here. Those that finish are the ones that don't quit. They just don't quit. They've set their mind, that's where they're going. They're not going to quit. See, that's in your DNA. When you accepted Christ as your Savior, he didn't quit. You partook of his life, and that's in there. If you belong to him, that's in there. Run with endurance, the race. And the word for race is agon, from which the word we get agony. It's going to cost you something. Your salvation costs you nothing but your spiritual life in Christ. Your life of faith will cost you everything. Run, be ready to run with endurance, the ability to endure pain, the egg on that's set before you. Well, how do we do that? First, we have those that have gone behind, that are behind us, that have already run their race. So we can say, you know what? That's somewhat of an encouragement. Others were successful. Others completed their race. Maybe I can too. Maybe I can too. We like to think of those in the past, well, they were different than us. No, no, they had the same. The Bible says in James, Elijah was a man with like passions, like distractions, like weaknesses, just like we are. And yet, what did he do? He prayed fervently. We can take encouragement that God is going to be there for us just like he was for them. And then verse 2 says, looking unto Jesus, fixing your eyes on Jesus. The Greek word gives us the idea that to look away from everything else but him. That's purpose. Because we decide, I just want to please him. I'm not going to worry about what everybody else thinks. I'm not going to worry about the storms that are going on, the political climate we happen to be in. What does Jesus want? That becomes a different purpose than just a little wristband you put on. What would Jesus do? Or a sweatshirt. Oh, that's cute. But actually studying the word of God to know what Jesus would do, spending time with him in prayer so that every decision is glory to him. Paul said, whether you eat, therefore, or drink, or whatever you do to all the glory. Well, that's a pretty narrow life. It's called a race. Called a race. But when my life becomes about pleasing the Lord, then all of a sudden my focus is, it doesn't really matter what anybody else thinks. Chuck Swindoll, I've said this before, but I like this. In his biography of Moses, he said, the older I get, the less I care what people think about me. I care what people think. I care about people, but I don't care what they think about me. Why? Because in his race, and I think this is what happens as we mature, 
pretty soon that's all that really matters anymore. That's why Paul said, I don't judge myself. I mean, even self-judgment can be crippling. He said, I just got to get back up and keep running. Keep my focus on the Lord. Looking unto Jesus, how come? He wrote the book on faith. He is the RK, the author, the beginner. He's the first one. He's the premier. The Old Testament, when they followed, we find out in Corinthians, Paul's writing the Corinthians, I think the second book, uh, chapter 4, I think. I'll have to look that up. You're going to question me on it. But he said that rock that we follow, that we follow in the Old Testament when, when we're being led through the wilderness, the rock that gave them water, the, walk, the rock that led them, that was Christ. That was Christ. He's the author. He's the beginner of faith. And he's the perfecter of faith. The Bible says, faithful is he that calls he will also bring it to pass. The purpose is for the joy. Who for the joy that was set before him? For the glory. In John 17, 4, Jesus in his high priestly prayer, he says, Now, Father, I have glorified you on earth by accomplishing the work that you gave me to do. Now glorify me with yourself with the glory I had before the world began. Jesus was looking forward. Yes, he, he enjoyed the, the people that came to know him here on this earth. Salvation he was provided. But the great thing that he strove for was the father to say, well done, son. You accomplished the work and to enjoy the glory. The Bible says in Romans chapter 12 that the little that we experience, the little, the little trials that we have here cannot be compared to the weight of glory that we'll experience in heaven. We've seen it many times, haven't we? We've, we've, we've heard the story, ABC News, up close and personal. ESPN will go through the stories of these great athletes, and then they win a gold medal. And they've been telling us the story of this particular person because they think he's going to win, and then that person wins the gold medal. Maybe they win several gold medals. And the race is over. And they have that time where they go to the stand and they put the bronze medal on and they give the silver medal and they put the gold medal around that champion's neck and he stands up and what happens? The flag of that nation raises and their national anthem plays. And tears of joy stream down the face of that athlete as they bask in the glory of winning. Now, Paul said they do it to win a corruptible crown. Not many young people, unless they study history, know who Jim Thorpe was. Jim Thorpe was one of the greatest athletes America probably ever produced. He won in track and football and baseball. He's an amazing athlete, but he's dead. He died a drunk alone in a trailer, and his name fades into history. That's what's going to happen to everything on this earth. Except for they that do the will of the Father abides forever. That glory abides forever. forever. Who for the joy that was set before him, the great joy is the exaltation of the Father and the glory that we'll hear from the Lord and the glory that we'll share with him forever for being a part of what God was doing on the earth.
He endured the cross. He despised the shame. And now he sat down forever. His race is complete. But the work of Christ is not done, is it? We still get that opportunity. But how do we do that? How do we keep that courage? Verse 3. Consider him. Consider him. The Greek word is the word we get for logical. Logismos, I think it's called. Logismos. Logic. Think about this. You see, you have the Old Testament saint, and they finished. You have the example of Jesus Christ. The question is, when you signed up for this race, when you chose Jesus Christ as your Savior, what were you expecting? What were you expecting? That's the encouragement. Vince Lombardi said, fatigue makes cowards of us all. You start getting tired. You get some injuries, and pretty soon you start asking, I don't know. I guess I didn't want to play football. How many athletes have come to Laramie? And they come and they say, Paul, I came to play football, but it's just not fun anymore. Well, what'd you expect? This is Division One. We're not playing in the backyard anymore. See, the coach, he's not really concerned whether you're having fun or not. He just wants you to get better so you can win together. When you win, that will be fun. That will be fun. But when you're starting to get some bruises and some cleat marks and you start crying, then maybe you're just not a football player. The call to salvation wasn't, and maybe somebody lied to you. Hey, listen, say this prayer. You're going to have your best life ever. No, no, no. That's not what Jesus called us to. Jesus said, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Where was Jesus going? He was going to be crucified. Take up your cross. He said, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. So when you start getting weary, you need to remember Jesus. How he stood against every enemy. He stood against every trial. And you know what? Here's the thing. You have the same spiritual DNA in you. If you trusted Jesus as your Savior, you can do it. The Bible says there's no trial taken you but such as is common to man. Now here's the encouragement. Just hearing that other people have been there is not real encouraging But here's the encouraging part. God is faithful. He'll not allow you to go through a trial you won't be able to bear. He'll always bring you through the trial. Paul had been through enough trials. He writes in Romans chapter 5, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. Isn't that wonderful? But not just this. Paul had come to the place of maturity. He said, man, I glory in my tribulation too. What? Oh, yeah, I like time in the gym, too. You see, athletes that are trained don't just enjoy the contest. They enjoy the training process also. They know when they get to a certain level of pain in their muscles, they're finally getting there, and they know they're stretching a little bit more. They're getting stronger. He said, we glory in tribulation also because we know tribulation works patience. That's the ability to endure. 
and patience experience. So when you get there before, this new trial is not going to blow you away because, hey, we've been here before. God has been faithful before. And then God expands our capacity for love. And he said, and because it's the love of God is spread abroad in our heart by the Holy Spirit that's given unto us. He's not going to expect you to do something he didn't do. He's been through there before. He's giving you the same DNA. Now, this last year, because it's close to us, I really enjoyed watching Ed McCaffrey's son, Christian McCaffrey, run for Stanford University. He's running back out there. Amazing athlete. He just runs over people and runs around people. He's not amazingly big or anything, but he's just, he's just good. I said, well, that makes sense. His mom was a really good athlete. His dad was a really good athlete. And then Andrew told me he found out his grandfather was an Olympic sprinter. Well, that makes sense. Yeah, some DNA there, isn't there? Guess what? You have been saved on purpose. And the Bible says in John 6, when you partake of Jesus Christ, you partook of his life. His life is in you. So when you get to the place that you're being discouraged because maybe some other Christians have hurt you. How many people quit because some other Christian hurt them? Listen, they're not perfected yet. Don't worry about that. You don't quit the team because somebody else tripped you or somebody else, oh, they're getting all the credit now. No, no, no. God's the one that sees you consider Jesus who endured such contradiction of sinners against himself. That's part of the deal. Sinners will get in your way. They will oppose you. Lest you be weary in your mind, that's where you quit. And you faint. You quit. What do you do? You remember. Paul said, it's no longer I that live, but Christ who lives in me. And by the time you run out of your own energy, that's what you're going to find out what grace is all about. You might say, hey, you know, Lord, I, whew, this is a pretty heavy trial. I'm not sure about that verse that says you're not going to allow me to suffer a trial. I think you're overestimating my ability. And your prayer, the Lord reminds you, he's not relying on your ability. Our strength is in Christ. Father, we thank you for your love for us. Lord, stir us up in our own heart, about our own race. Lord, finding out, Lord, how have you gifted us? What, are, what is my ministry? How am I to be ministering to the saint? Who are the people you want me to reach with the gospel? Lord, how am I running? Is there some things that I need to take off? Is there some things I need to let go of that I'm dragging around in my race and it's slowing me down? Lord, I keep tripping. What do I do about this sin? Lord, give us a heart to be honest with you. Because you've promised, if we will confess our sins, you're faithful. You'll forgive us and you'll cleanse us. You've promised if we delight ourselves in you, Lord, Psalm 37, 4, that you'll give us your desires. And you'll bring up our righteousness like the sun coming up tomorrow, Lord. That's your promise. Give us a heart for your word, Lord, that we might be feeding on the nutrition of that we might be soldiers that please you, that we might have the strength to finish our race, that we might not be guessing what Jesus would do, but we know what Jesus would do. And Lord, give us a heart to be looking forward to the glory of standing one day in your presence with all the saints, remembering that we got to be a part of the victory march and seeing others come to Christ, that we were faithful in our time and our place, 
and then cry out with all the saints, worthy is the Lamb. To be able to have crowns to cast at your feet, Lord, that, we'll just give you all the glory for that. Lord, stir us up in our own individual races and the race of this church that we as a congregation might be found faithful. And we'll give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.